the Jerry Committee then makes this proposal, which we've been through, with the glue in it, which is money bills shall be introduced in the House, but shall not be altered or amended in the Senate. And I think that uh, um, um, Kelly, right? Is that, is that Kelly? Carol. Carol. Carol, I can't see your sign. That's the first Carol. Carol's point was a very good one. Does that mean to say that the, that the Senate can say no? And I, I guess from the plain language, the answer is yes, they can say no. But I think the intent was basically they're out of it. Um, they, certainly, they certainly cannot alter, alter or amend. So they just have a, a rubber stamp. Or, I, I, but that's a good question. I'm going to try and leave more room for questions on this particular um, go around now that we have the um, the frame in, in, in shape. All right, so we've got, the, we've got the Jerry Committee report, the Connecticut Compromise in, in, our, in our sites. And that vote takes place on, on July the 16th. And if you want to take a look at the vote itself, it's on page 297. In your, in your text. On the question for agreeing to the whole report as amended and including the equality of votes in the second branch, that's the June the 11th of, of, of Sherman and then the later June of Ellsworth, it passed in the affirmative. Massachusetts was divided. Huh. Mr. Gary and Mr. Strong, I, says Madison. The good guys were <coughs> Gorham and King. Mr. King and Mr. Gorham, no. Connecticut, I. New Jersey, I. Pennsylvania, no. Thank goodness. Delaware, I. Maryland, I. Virginia, no. Thank goodness I carried the day on that one. North Carolina, I. Mr. Spate, no. South Carolina, no. Georgia, no. Um, who changed their mind? The answer is that uh, Mr. Um, Mr. Spate didn't from North Carolina, but the rest of the North Carolina delegation did, beginning, most importantly, with Mr. Davey, who declared partly national, partly federal. Who changed their mind elsewhere? Mr. Jerry and Mr. Strong. Mr. Strong following Mr. Jerry in the um, Massachusetts um, um, delegation. And the whole then was passed in the following words, etc. And the question then becomes, well, you know, what do we do about this? And uh, there is a, Chris, could you help me please find, as I'm working, I'm trying to work my way through this one. Remember, there's a next, it's the very next day, I believe, that Mr. Randolph, there's a, this, this, uh, this, this, no, this is either introductory note or footnote, we'll see if we can find it, where the, the, the the large states get together and decide, are they going to go and do something about this? Are they going to... 299? Yes. Right, exactly right. 299. Mr. Randolph. See, now Mr. Randolph now is upset with this decision. Okay? Mr. Mason isn't, but Mr. Randolph is. The vote of this morning involving equality of the suffrage has embarrassed the business extremely. 
All the powers given in the report were founded on the supposition that proportional representation was to prevail in both. When he came here this morning, his purpose was to have offered some propositions that might have possible have united a great majority of votes, but finding from the, that it, it didn't work, he's upset. And so what are we going to do? And the answer is that Madison and other forces said, we lost, let's get on with it. We've got other things to do and to keep fighting the same thing over and over again. And that's a great turning point in the life of the convention. So I would add July the 16th as a very important turning day. It's, and it, it, marks, it marks the day where that for a month, virtually a month, Sherman, etc., keep at it and manage, in effect, to prevail in the Senate. So now they can start turning to other things. And one of the first things they turn to is um, the issue of um, what are we going to do about the veto power of Congress. Remember, the Virginia plan not only has this representation scheme, but it has the uh, veto power. Congress can veto any state legislation. And that hasn't been touched yet. It also has that Congress can exercise all powers for which the states are incompetent. We haven't talked about that yet. So now, finally, we can talk about those things. So one of the first things they do is to say, well, what are we going to do about the veto power? And the answer is, it's defeated. Now, I don't want to hark on how many things Madison has lost, because he really is the father of the Constitution. But we need to understand that the father of the Constitution is not the father of the... <laughs> that it's not the same thing as the Virginia plan. A genuine discussion and deliberation took place in which sides were accommodated. If you want to, to, if you want to bequeath to the next generation, what, what is... What is so important about the American experiment is in the experiment in discussion. And Tocqueville captured it very well 40, 50 years later. He says, can you imagine that the country was informed its government can't work? They sit down for, for four months and deliberate, and then they go into ratification and deliberate some more for an entire year, and not a drop of blood was spilled. <laughs> and you know, that is absolutely amazing. And historians have justly and, and, and properly applauded the peaceful transfer of power between Adams and Jefferson in 1800-1801. And it's the first peaceful transformation of power, and it was a nasty campaign. But, and quite justly, they have ex explained that. But there was a precedent for it. And we're looking at the precedent where people can deliberate earnestly and, and, and very diligently, and not a drop of blood, um, not a drop of blood was spilled. Well, Madison's veto power has gone. And that was vital in the Virginia plan for the way, for, for, the, for the federal government, or the, let's see, the, the, the new government to control wayward, in, unjust, and illiberal um, state legislatures, majority tyranny at the state level, if you could veto. And as Chris and Lucas will point out later on, there's this famous letter from Madison to Thomas Jefferson in October of 1787. If, if the vices is the first draft of Federalist 10, and June the 6th is the second draft of Federalist 10, then the October letter is the third draft of Federalist 10, or simultaneous with Federalist 10, in which he explains to Jefferson how unfortunate it was that this veto power was lost. So that the federal, so Madison's plan, Madison's hope 
now has to turn to something else. It means that the extended republic of Federalist 10 is going to have to play a much greater role than, than, he, had, than, than he had intended. And the, the Senate is going to have to play a much greater role than he had intended. Remember, in his vices, he called for a veto also. So this is lost. And interestingly then, what gets put in its place? This has confused historians and other commentators for some time, and it confused me until I finally figured it out. The confusing thing is very, very next motion, and it's by Luther Martin, is to introduce the supremacy clause. And I think, what is going on? You've just defeated the veto, and now you're going to introduce the supremacy clause, which in effect says that the laws of the United States are supreme and superior over the states. And why would Luther Martin, a states' rights person, introduce that? Right. Here's the answer. The answer is that under the Articles and the whole idea of the New Jersey plan is that we shall take an oath of allegiance to the government. We don't want the government on a regular basis through a veto governing our lives. But we are willing to take an oath which says the, the laws of the United States are superior. And I ticks Madison off once again. And he says, here we go. The problem with the articles is going to be exactly the same thing unless we're careful about this. The problem with the articles is we're going to have to meet the same thing. Namely, it's either faith or force. The articles are based on the faith. Every person getting along and obeying and taking an oath, I agree. Well, what happens if somebody doesn't agree? What happens if some state violates their oath? The answer is you bring in the troops to enforce, to enforce the law. There is no regular way of enforcing the law, says Madison, under the articles. That's why I want my veto. Beyond faith and short of force. You have this regular mechanism. That's the point to the veto. You've just done away with my veto. And what have you just introduced again? We do solemnly swear. So are we back to faith and force again? Or must we look somewhere else in the Constitution now to be able to have some kind of regular way of getting involved um, with... with, with, with illiberality and injustice to the state's level. So that becomes a challenge now for Madison for the remainder of the convention. And we shall take a look at how, if at all, he manages to get something back in there. Well, I will, I will uh, anticipate and, and, and suggest to you that the two things that come to play a role down the line as a substitute for Madison's veto is an interpretation of the necessary and proper clause, which, has, which gives the federal government, under certain interpretations, uh, a foot in the, in, in the whole making of laws in the land. And uh, so the Congress, through interpreting of the necessary and proper clause, and also general welfare clause, and then the Supreme Court, through the supremacy clause of Article 6, have... Uh, sort of taking the place down the line after the convention of what Madison wanted as the veto. So the point is, how does the supremacy clause make its appearance and why does it make its appearance? And it makes its appearance here as a substitute for the veto. And again, on the surface it sounds odd that somebody like Luther Martin would do it, but it's not odd if we understand that the whole idea of the articles and the New Jersey plan is a system based on faith and taking oaths. 
And Madison's point is, right, and I've seen many an oath broken. I can't rely on parchment barriers, and I cannot rely on people making oaths. People lie. I've seen it happen all the time, he says. Not me, says Luther Martin. <clears throat> all right, that's one thing that's, I, I, I think, uh, uh, important to see. The, the other thing that I should mention to you as we, as we um, pass through this, uh, on, on this journey is on, that on July the 13th, just before the July 16th vote, the then imbecilic Congress passed the Northwest Ordinance, which is an extremely important document, not only for this week's session, but a very important document for next week's session for a lot of the debate between Lincoln and Douglas. Not all of it, but a lot of it turns on what is the status of the Northwest Ordinance as a, as a, as a sort of part of the sacred bundle, which would include the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Where does the Northwest Ordinance stand in terms of that icon in the debate? And uh, as you shall see, Tawny thought that uh, Northwest Ordinance was a, uh, didn't, have, didn't have standing, whereas Lincoln did. One of the most important provisions of the Northwest Ordinance was the final provision. And that final provision uh, was about slavery. And it says that slavery shall be prohibited in the Northwest Territory, which is the territory bequeathed by the various states to end the dispute. It was so that it was turned over to the federal government, which is, again, another act of becoming American. And... Uh, and the Northwest Ordinance banned slavery, prohibited slavery, from the, from the territory immediately in exchange for something called the Fugitive Slave Clause. And the Fugitive Slave Clause reads like this in the Northwest Ordinance. And any person escaping from whom labor or service is lawfully claimed, and I want to emphasize the word lawfully, is lawfully claimed in any one of the original states. And I want to emphasize the words original states. Such fugitive may be, and I want to emphasize the word may be, lawfully, and I want to emphasize the word lawfully, reclaimed and conveyed to the person claiming, and I want to emphasize the word claiming, his or her labor or service. By the way, the word her is in there. And... Um, it's one of the very few times that um, the word she or her is mentioned in these, uh, in these deliberations. So to repeat what I want to emphasize, slavery is prohibited at once. Originally, when the discussions were going on from 1783, the idea was to prohibit slavery after 1800, a new millennium would begin a world without slavery in the territories. And that kept failing for one or two votes. And I won't mention whose one or two votes would prohibit anything from doing the right thing. <clears throat> but um, eventually it turned on um, that it, would not, it wouldn't be 1800, but it would be now. And that uh, with this proviso, from whom labor or service is lawfully claimed in any one of the original states, 
such fugitive may be lawfully reclaimed and, and, and conveyed to the person claiming his or her labor or service. Notice the word justice is not there. It is lawfully. And I want to make an emphasis between justice and lawful. Also, I want to make the point that original states, and this is a clear understanding that there will be other states coming in, probably from these Northwest Territories and maybe even beyond. And to the extent that we're talking about slavery, it's about the original states and not states that are yet to come in. And I think you wonder the questions might be then, why did the South ever go along with this? And I think part of it was that there is still some Southern sentiment, with the exception of some hardliners in South Carolina and Georgia, that uh, were willing to start a new America in a new land at a new millennium. And that it was the original states and the fugitives from those original states that would be the interesting question for the, uh, for the Southerners at that time. So that one could say the Southerners were asleep at the wheel and didn't understand what they were doing. Or one could say that the Southerners were, some of them were at least, were partly reasonable and understood that a new America was a dawning and in this new America there wouldn't be slavery. Or one could also go so far as to say as far as the Southerners were concerned in the original states, the fugitive slave clause was, was what they needed or what they wanted. Yes. Was there any conversation? They would exchange barring slavery north of the Ohio for that when the Southwest territories right. came in, they didn't mention slavery. They didn't mention slavery, no. Um, no, the Northwest Ordinance does not cover the Southwest Ordinance. Yeah, I'm saying that that was a trade off. I, 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 I didn't see that as a, well, it could be, but I, I haven't <laughs> noticed that as a trade off. The, tra the trade off, as I understood it, as I understand it, is that slavery is not going... When do we stop slavery in the Northwest Territories? And the answer is, is it going to be now, or is it going to be 1800? And what is it going to get you in the South to agree to something along those lines? And the answer was the Fugitive Slave Clause. Now, when you start going below the Mason-Dixon line and you start going below there, it becomes a different issue. Yes? Um, yeah, well, yeah, there were various movements, whether it was economically feasible or, or not, there were various movements in the states between 1776 and, and 1780 to, um, to, to terminate two things, one, slavery, and secondly, the slave trade. I mean, a lot of the conversation is taking, takes place over the slave trade rather than slavery directly, and the, the, the reason for that is that the is that the enlightened thought at the time saw, saw it as a pincer movement, if I, might, if I might put it that way. That is, if you could stop the movement from overseas into the United States and you could stop the spread of it into the Northwest Territories, then you've got the issue, you've got it, you're, you've got it confined. The real question becomes, what do you do about where slavery originally exists? Okay? That, becomes, that becomes a stopping point. And, and, um, and, and between 1776 and 1790, um, 
well, let's say by, by, by 1787, every state but Georgia and South Carolina had moved toward abolishing the slave trade. By 1787, every state but Georgia and South Carolina had moved toward abolishing slavery in some capacity, not necessarily completely, but putting it on the road to extinction between 1780, uh, by 1787. Um, the debate over what to do with slavery and the slave trade was going on in the UK and US and nowhere else between 1780 and 1800. And it's very interesting that uh, between 1600 and 1860, 12 million Africans left the coast of Africa. Half of them went to Brazil. And the rest distributed in probably less than, uh, about 7% about landed up in, in British North America. And, and yet we hear most about the, uh, about the condemnation of, 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 of slavery with regard to British North America and the, and, 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 and the British Isles, and not a heck of a lot dealing with the, the, the story about... Port, Portugal was the, was the biggest slave trader along with the, along with the French and the Spanish. Um, and, the, and the two countries that were trying to do something about it were the British and the Americans at the same time that the British were involved in a very lucrative trade um, let, let, let me come back to it, all right? Let me come back to slavery. All right, so what have we got so far then? We've got the Northwest Ordinance with those words that I've stated, no slavery in the territories in exchange for the Fugitive Slave Clause, which has the word legally involved, not justice, and original states uh, involved, which this is a confining understanding, and also upon claim. And the question is then, one has to file. You just don't say this is mine. You have to file someplace to do it. Now, that came through on July the 13th. And that news got to the conventioneers uh, within days. But it didn't form part of the Connecticut Compromise. So far at the convention, the only thing about slavery that has been mentioned has been mentioned indirectly rather than confronted directly and it's a question dealing with are the states going to be equally represented in the Senate or are we going to have popular representation in the House and the three-fifths clause enters as part of that conversation about representation and taxation and not as a direct confrontation about the status of slavery per se or the slave trade all right so Act one and Act two at the convention is only the three-fifths clause. However, near the end of Act two, we get the July the 13th message coming in from New York about North slavery being abandoned in the Northwest Territories in exchange for the fugitive slave clause. Okay. Well, what happens at the end of Act two and as we begin Act three is that it becomes very, very clear to the, to, to the delegates, uh, two things. First of all, we have broken the back of the issue of representation. And secondly, we, we can't keep just talking. We've got to have a new piece of paper in front of us. So what they do is they create something called the Committee on Detail. And this Committee on Detail... Um, 
It's created near the uh, near the end of near the end of July. Uh, let me. I want to find this find this date for you. In here. Um, yeah, the, yeah, the committee on detail on page three hundred and sixty-two. Mr. Rutledge from South Carolina, Mr. Randolph from Virginia, Mr. Gorham from Massachusetts, Mr. Ellsworth from Connecticut, and Mr. Wilson from Pennsylvania, a motley crew. And they're given the, they're, they're, they're given the Virginia plan, the amended Virginia plan, the New Jersey plan, something called the Pinckney plan. And their job is to sit down and digest everything that's gone on at the convention and to come up with suggestions and recommendations for dealing with um, the remaining outstanding issues. And that should include how do we elect the president? What are we going to do about the president? What are we going to do about the judiciary, which we still haven't got to? What are we going to do about powers? Are we going to list them or not? Are we going to say that the, that the states, that Congress can do whatever the states are incompetent to do? How are we going to handle all this? How do we detail things? Spell it out. That's what the point of the Committee on Detail is. Now that the conceptual framework has been set, how do we go into detail? Well, we can't just sit around and detail the details among ourselves. We're going to have a committee to do it. Once again, this is a, a, a clear shift in the life of the convention. Once you start going into committee work, you're giving a privileged position to those people. Otherwise, why bother? And they're then going to, who gets on those committees are going to, going to be very important. Of course, the committee on the whole, all of us, have a veto power. So it becomes important as you're starting to look through the Act 3 and Act 4 is to see who gets on these committees. And what kind of heat and light does the work of these committees generate in the convention? That is, is there anything that comes up that, that people say, whoa, 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 we ain't going down that road? Or are people generally saying, right, all right, all right, we defer, we defer? Because there's going to be a deferential disposition occurring, but at the same time, you're not going to give up your right to say, wait, I want to talk about that. So we want, that's what we want to look at. Now, this motley crew, Mr. Rutledge, Mr. R well, Mr. Randolph is already expressing a little bit of concern, but he's, a going, he's going along with it. Gorham is a, high, is a sort of a high-toned person. Mr. Ellsworth is going to look out for the states. And Mr. Wilson is a, a person who's interested in, in the principle of popular government and, and also interested in the uh, importance of the judiciary. Later on, um, Mr. Wilson becomes a judge on the, on, on the Supreme Court of the United States in the 1790s. Mr. Ellsworth is the author of the famous Judiciary Act in the first Congress. And, um, and so both of them have something to do with the judiciary. Uh, Mr. Randolph becomes the first attorney general, uh, etc. But what is important to note is and if you go, if you go to not, not only the composition of that committee, but if you take a look at page 355, which is the last remark of the day before that, on July the 23rd, as they're getting ready to select this committee and go, go into committee and go into adjournment, 
and go fishing at Valley Forge and get a break and, uh, and then come back and really deal with Act 3 and Act 4 seriously. Mr. Pinckney says the following on page 355. Mr. Pinckney, General Pinckney, South Carolina, reminded the convention that if the committee should fail to insert some security to the southern states against an emancipation of slaves and taxes on exports, he should be bound by duty to his state to vote against the report. Well, um, here is South Carolina, again, laying down an ultimatum. And which means, well, it means a couple of things to me. One of the things it means to me is that the slavery question is, is yet to be discussed. That the three-fifths clause is incidentally dealing with slavery. The direct dealing with slavery has to come. And he uses the phrase emancipation of slaves very deliberately. As he's not just talking about slave trade, emancipation of slaves. And he makes this remark on the 23rd of July. And by that time, the evidence is that they've know, they know what the Congress has done with the Northwest Ordinance, which they passed on July the 13th. So he's giving a warning, a shot across the bow. Don't you come back with anything in this committee and detail report which smells of emancipation of slaves, because South Carolina will not go along with it. And the person who, one person who is on that committee who will take care of that is Mr. Rutledge from South Carolina. All right. What then does this committee and detail report look like? And what I want to do is to go through some of it with you, not in page by page and line by line, but sufficiently to, uh, to guide you. Once again, we always have a text in front of us, or we have a proposal in front of us. And the proposal is outlined for you in your Madison Notes, starting on page 385. And when you take a look there, you will see, <laughs> very interesting, Mr. John Francis Mercer from Maryland took his seat. Where were you, John? <laughs> it's about time you got here. Oh, by the way, yes, and, and, and the New Hampshire crowd has arrived. But well, Mr. Mercer, one of the things that's very interesting to, to, to see is the extent to which when somebody has not been part of the conversation, how they can seem to be, in fact, coming from Mars. Uh, Mr. Mercer introduces things during that week that must have taken the delegates by surprise. He says, oh, I think we should have uh, go back to the Articles of Confederation. And people say, what? Well, of course. He wasn't part of the eight weeks. So he's coming into the conversation way late. And that's one way to follow what, what is, what's going on. I mean, when somebody's not there, that shows the deliberative process, that people buy into the, the conversation. And one of the hardest things that Madison and Hamilton have to do, and they do it in the Federalist Papers, one of the hardest things they have to do is to educate people on the outside who are not part of the conversation. How do you converse with people who weren't there to hear the twists and the turns and the nuances and the sort of understandings and the shifts of going to partly national, partly federal, and, and what do we do about this, and how do we do about that? So that becomes a huge, massive job. It's not just a job of PR and sales. It becomes, it becomes a whole different part of the deliberative process. You'll notice that there's a preamble in this. It's starting to look like a constitution. 
there's a preamble, but it says, we the people of the states of New Hampshire, etc. And it lists the states. It has we the people. So the concept of we the people starts here in the Committee on Detail Report, but then the states are listed. Well, we know at the end, the final document, via the Committee on Style Report, it's we the people of the United States, and the states aren't listed. Uh, there are two important things to notice there. The end of the article, it's we the states, and it says we the people, so it's got that part. The Committee on Details preamble shows we're partly national, we the people, and partly federal. List the states. And uh, what the committee and what the final constitution does is drop the listing of the states. And, and, and I think that's very profound for people who wish to write a constitution to last for ages and expect, because of the Northwest Territories, etc., that there are going to be new states coming in. Why the heck do you want, I mean, what would you have to do? You'd have to amend the document every single time a new state came in if you listed the states. So it makes since, not, not just simply because you want to get away from associating with the states, but because if you want a document to last into remote futurity, you don't want to keep revising it all the time. Think about condominium uh, uh, rules and regulations. If you, I mean, who, want re who reads that? Uh, <clears throat> well, and now we have articles. You're starting to take the shape of, of, of a constitution. Article 1. It shall be uh, you know, the United States of America. Article 2, we could come supreme. And Article 3, the legislative power shall consist of that. Article 4, the members uh, shall be chosen every second year by the people of the states comprehend within this union, qualification, etc. Section 2, every member of the House shall be the average of 25 years at least, shall have been a citizen of the United States for at least three years before his election, and shall be at the time a resident of the state. I mean, by, by comparison to the to, to ancient times, that's, that's a very limited uh, requirement, age, um, citizenship, and, 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 and residency requirement. Um, in my opinion, very, no, very democratic. It goes on, section three, section four. One of the ones we want to stop at and take a look at down the line here is section five. Article four, section five, it says, all bills for raising or appropriating money and for fixing the salaries of the officers shall originate in the House and shall not be altered or amended by the Senate. That's the glue of the Connecticut Compromise, and it's there in Section 4. Uh, article 5 talks about the Senate, and, um, and, and so you can see articles and sections beginning to appear and appearing around the various branches of government. Article 6, times, places, and manners of holding elections. The legislation established uniform qualifications if a member. Wow, this is, this is good stuff. Section 5, freedom of speech and debate clause in the, in, in the legislative branch. Section 6, each house shall determine its rules and they can keep a journal and neither house shall the consent of the other shall adjourn. I mean, all this makes its way into the final constitution in, in the form of and the final constitution, Article 1, Section 5. And Article 1, Section 6, detail these questions of the rights and responsibilities of legislators and how they shall go and conduct their business and their own internal power. It's all here from the Committee and Detail Report and moves rather smoothly into the Constitution itself in Article 1, Section 4, 5, 5 and 6. And then um, Section 16, Excuse me, section 13, 
deals with the veto power. And he said, whoa, wait a minute, this is in the legislative branch. The presidential veto in the legislative branch? Well, yeah, that gives the president some kind of legislative authority that's going on here. But sure enough, final document, Article 1, Section 7, Article 1, the legislative branch in the final constitution, that's where you'll find the veto power of the president, not in Article 2, which is the presidential power. You say, what is that? Why, why is that? Don't we have Article 1, final constitution, legislature, Article 2, final constitution, president? Isn't that a presidential power? Wouldn't we go there? Well, that's interesting, isn't it? That the president has a foot in the legislature. Bam. Why is that? Well, that, that, that's, a, that's a sort of a, an amendment of the original Council of Revision. Bam. So I understand what's going on here. You're involving the president in policy making uh, as part of giving energy and direction and dispatch. Oh, good. I see that. And then we get to number seven. And this is very, very important. Under the Virginia plan, Congress could do all those things for which the states were incompetent. Article 7 of the Committee in Detail report says Congress shall exercise the following powers. We have an enumeration of powers of Congress. And notice, look at the first two. The legislature shall have the power to lay and collect taxes, duties, imposts, and excises, something that Congress did not have the power to do under the Articles, and the New Jersey plan at least was willing to give them. Number two, to regulate commerce with foreign nations and among the several states. That is the interstate commerce clause or the international commerce clause makes its appearance in the committee in detail report. It's something that the uh, union did not have under the Articles of Confederation. And then it goes on. Coin money, establish post office, to borrow money, dot, 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 to make war. Later on, they change that to declare war. And as Chris and I have had many a discussion, and where did to make war go? Because nowhere in the Constitution does the phrase to make war appear. Does that mean it disappears, or does it mean it goes to the presidency? And we can have a long, interesting discussion about that, but uh, we must move on. <laughs> to raise armies, to do this, to do that, and to do the other. And... Finally, at the end of section one, and to make all laws that shall be necessary and proper for carrying into execution the foregoing powers and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof. That's the appearance of the necessary and proper clause. That's where it makes its first appearance, right here in the Committee in Detail report, and it remains that way all the way through. The question, of course, is, is it just a, what does it mean? And I think a lot of attention has been paid. There are two parts to the clause. And I think a lot of attention has been paid, paid to the first part of the clause. And insufficient attention has been paid to the second part of the clause. The first part of the clause is carrying into execution the foregoing powers, which seems to link the necessary and proper clause to the 17 items which are listed in front of it. By the way, there are 18 items listed in the final constitution in Article 1, Section 8. But the second part of the clause, and all other powers vested by this Constitution in the government of the United States or in any department or officer thereof, that gives, in my opinion, a sweeping power for Congress to establish the operations of the executive and the judiciary. Then it defines treason. And then it has, then in section three is, the, is your representation clause, the three-fifths clause. And then we come to section four, which is what I want to stop. This is the Pinckney request that Rutledge delivers. 
No tax or duty shall be laid on the, by the legislature on articles exported from any state, nor on a migration or importation of such persons as the several states shall think proper to admit, nor shall such migration or importation be prohibited. Let me read that again to you. So I'm going to drop the first part. The legislature shall issue no tax or duty on the migration or importation of such persons as the several states shall think proper to admit, nor shall such migration or importation be prohibited. In short, if you wanted to see a slaveholder's document, it's a committee on detail report. It prohibits Congress from ever, ever, ever in the future prohibiting the importation and migration of slavery. And it uses the word proper. It doesn't use the word person. And it doesn't, it doesn't limit it to the original states. It's the several states. Now this is section four, and I want to return to that in a moment. Article seven, it talks about the supreme law of the land. Article nine, it talks about the Senate and the empowered the Senate has. In the familiar detail report, the Senate has the exclusive power to make treaties and to appoint ambassadors and judges. One of the things that changes in August and September is that that power is shared with the president. So the president then gets to, to, to make treaties with the consent, with the concurrence of the Senate and to nominate ambassadors, etc., with the concurrence of the Senate. That gets changed where the president then is beefed up because of the concern that the Senate has become too powerful in the enterprise. Number 10 talks about the president. They still have a long way to go at the president. Number 11, your judiciary. Um, number 12, no, is, a, is, a, is a, a listing of uh, things that a state can't do. Uh, again, number 13, what a state can't do. Uh, 14, what a state owes another state. And 15 is the extradition clause, and I want to return to that. Number 15, any person charged with treason, felony, or high misdemeanor in any state who shall be free from justice and shall be found in any other state shall demand of the executive power be delivered up and removed to the state having jurisdiction. That's the extradition clause. Uh, 16 is the full faith and credit clause. Uh, number 17 is the admission of new states clause. Article 18 is the Shays Rebellion clause. That is guarantee of Republican government. Article 19 uh, the, how do you amend the Constitution? The 20 is the oath of office clause. 21 is how this plan is going to be ratified, and it leaves it open. The ratification of the conventions of such states. That is clearly a movement towards consent of the government, but we want to have special call conventions. Uh, 22, we'll lay it before Congress for the approbation, and it's an opinion of the convention, then it should be convinced to, to submit it to the convention of the states as recommended in the previous article. And then uh, 23, if they introduce the government, we should do it in the following way. That's the Committee of Detail Report. I've just gone through it very quickly with you. And, um, but they spend the entire month of August and into the early July debating every single article in every single section. I'm not going to go through every single article, every single section with you. But what I am going to do is to focus on certain articles and certain sections. 
on August the 8th. Here are a couple of points, and I, I really would love to have a, uh, a, a, a more extended conversation with you about slavery and, and, and a couple of other things. So I'm, I'm going to highlight one or two issues here to give you a flavor. Um, on August the, August the 8th, they make their way to Article 4, Section 5, which is the money bills provision. And it is defeated <clears throat> seven to three. And that is, Madison says, in effect, to heck with the glue of the Connecticut Compromise. I'm not interested in it. And, and six states concur with him. And, uh, and Randolph is upset. And on the ninth, Randolph says, uh, I really do object to defeat of the money bills, and I want to reconsider it. And on August the um, 13th, they reconsider the money bills provision. And there's a very famous quotation that I want to alert you to. And once again, the context is this money bills provision. But the statement has enormous consequences uh, in, in American political thought. And the page number is 447. And 447, they're talking about well, what to do. And in the middle of the page, Mr. Dickinson says, experience must be our only guide. Raise, reason may mislead us. It was not reason that discovered the singular and admiral mechanism of the English Constitution. It was not reason that discovered or ever could have discovered the odd and in the eye of those who are governed by reason, the absurd mode of trial by jury. Accidents probably produce these discoveries, and experience has given a sanction to them. This, then, our guide. And he goes on to talk about money bills. Well, this is not the first, nor is it the last time, that an incredibly wonderful and path-breaking conversation emerges from a mundane matter dealing with money. But this passage has been extracted by many historians as the epitome or the representation of what went on at the, at the convention itself. And it means that these folks were not particularly interested in grand issues and concepts. They were people steeped in experience and were just interested in getting something done. That has become sort of a, a, a summary of the whole mood of the convention. Well, I think that we've discovered that that's not quite accurate summary of the mood of the convention, but it certainly is a summary of the mood of the convention with regard to money bills. And, um, and partly national and partly federal is not simply a matter of experience, but a matter of choice. The other, the other reason why this passage is so important is because one of the big themes of, of our seminar together over the next couple of weeks is to what extent is American politics and government in general the result of uh, deliberation and choice, and to what extent is our life a matter of accident or experience and force. And on the one hand, you have folks like John Locke with his, with his contract theory, imagining people sitting down in a state of nature and drawing up contracts and deliberating and reasoning. And we've got this convention basing on deliberation. We've got Hamilton 
in Federalist Number 1 talking about the role of deliberation. And on the other hand, you've got folks like David Hume who, think, and, uh, uh, who thinks that contract theory is a bunch of nonsense, that uh, you can't call the 1689 Bill of Rights a contract. It was a gun to the head. And that life does not emerge through contract theory, but emerges through muddles and puddles and whatnot, and just kind of happens, just like British life. So one knows why this is common land or not common land, or why some lord of the manor can come along and require you to pay a fee 300 years after it's all over. Uh, no one understands those things. And that's its beauty. The fact is that you cannot discover its foundation, its origins, is its very defensibility. So you've got three things going on here with this, with this passage. First of all, it locates the specific discussion over money bills. Why money bills is important, because it's the glue. Madison says, I'm not interested in the glue, but it might make Randolph and others become unglued. Secondly, look at the extent to which a conversation about mundane matters generates a rather elaborate discussion that can be taken out of context and portrayed for the entire American experience by historians. Douglas Adair, for example, has made much of this passage in his notion of let experience be our guide and his interpretation of the American founding. And the third is the extent to which it fits in with our seminar, the whole role of reason and choice and deliberation on the one hand versus accident and force on the other. It's a wonderful little passage, and it can be read at all three levels. But in the immediate context, it is at the level of the money bills that we want to, that we want to, we want to see its impact. Well, eventually then, this becomes an issue for Randolph. And as we know, this provision... Um, was, was, was dropped, and, uh, and in the final constitution, you can see it in Article 1, Section 7, which is how a bill becomes a law. In the final constitution, Article 1, Section 7, how a bill becomes a law, it starts off by saying money bills shall originate in the House, but shall, like all other bills, be subject to approval, disapproval, amendment, etc., by the Senate. So it's treated as if it's any... In, like any other bill, except that money bills must start there. But it can be treated like any other bill that can be changed by the Senate. So that's how Article 1, Section 7 came to be through that, through, through that long, laborious um, trek. And the importance of, of it is the Connecticut Compromise. Okay, on, um, on, on, if we take a look at Article 4, Section 2, which deals with the property, excuse me, which deals with the, with, with the, um, the uh, requirements for people running for office and, and also for voting, it's very interesting that a number of historians, uh, I'm thinking in particular of a non-historian, Michael Kinsley, who used to be editor for Harper's and then in the LA Times, and now he's back on, on, um, online again. In, in one of his descriptions of the founders as aristocrats and oligarchs, points to the speech by Pinckney on August the 10th, which is on page 425 of your text. And uh, Mr. Pinckney starts off on Friday, August the 10th, discussing about property qualifications for members of the legislature. And he says, you know, we've got to uh, we, have, have uh, uh, some property qualifications. And he talks about the president at the bottom of the page and the judges. And they have to be 
umpires between the states and individual states. Were he to fix, this is the top of 426, were he to fix the quantum of property which should be required, he should not think of less than $100,000 for the president. There's still rather a lot of money for it today, never mind then. Half of that sum for each of the judges, and in like proportion for the members of the national legislature. He would, however, leave the sums blank. His motion was that the President of the United States, the judges and members of the legislature, should be required to swear that they were respectively possessed of a clear, unencumbered estate of the amount of such and such in the case of the President. The Mr. Rutledge seconded the motion, observing, etc., etc. Well, Yes, indeed, Mr. Pinckney, South Carolina, and Mr. Rutledge, South Carolina, did introduce those two, did, did introduce heavy property qualifications. That is true. And Mr. Kinsley is quite correct to mention that. What he doesn't mention is what happened. If you take a look at the top of 427, we will learn what happened. The motion of Mr. Pinckney was rejected by so general a no, in italics, that the states were not called. <laughs> In other words, Mr. Pinckney, you're out of the picture. That is not what we have in mind. We're going to pay our representatives in a commercial republic, and we're going to give them reasonable pay, et cetera, et cetera, down the line. We're not, our qualifications for running for office are exactly what we've stated. We are not going to have property qualifications. If you want an indication of, of, a, of, of, of the democratic character of... Um, of the provisions, I would certainly point to that one as, uh, as, 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 what, is, you know, as what is not there. Uh, Madison tries again to have his uh, Council of Revision, but it is defeated. And I want to turn right now to um, o uh, August the 18th. And the reason for that, uh, on o August the 18th, which is on page 477, is that Mr. Madison begins August the 18th. Uh, he submits in order to be referred to the Committee of Detail the following powers as proper to be added. Uh, this, this is very, very important. Remember, the Virginia plan doesn't list any powers. It says Congress has the powers to do all those things for which the states are incompetent. The Committee in Detail starts listing some powers. The question becomes, have we missed any? If we start listing, do we have to list everything? Or can we list a few and then interpret a few others? Or what do we mean by silence? And Madison isn't going to take a chance. And when you get to the issue of rights, it becomes the same thing. If I start listing rights, must I list them all? And if I fail to list a right, does that mean it isn't there and I don't have it? This stage, Act 3 to Act 4, we're getting now out of the issue of structure and into the issue of powers. And once you start getting into the issue of powers, you start talking about, <laughs> have I missed one or can I infer them? And once you start talking about powers, the reverse side of the coin happens to be rights. And it's no accident that in the Committee and Detail Report, once they start talking about powers, bam, right after it, you start talking about rights. Now let me jump and link to what Lucas is going to be doing tomorrow. 
<clears throat> and that is going through the Constitution with you. Article 1 is the legislative branch. And Lucas will take you through that and talk to you about it. And so I'm not going to do that other than to suggest that Article 1, Section 7 says how a bill becomes a law. Article 1, Section 8 lists the powers of Congress. But what then is the purpose of Article 1, Section 9 and Article 1, Section 10? Article 1, Section 9 lists the rights of individuals and the states against Congress. Article 1, Section 10 lists the rights of individuals and the nation against the states. Once you start listing powers, then rights comes, come, comes tumbling right behind. That's why Article 1 is such a, 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 a lucid, coherent document in terms of, it's not just a bundle of compromises. There's a coherence to it. Right? And this is what the conversation is, 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 is taking place right here. So Madison, on August the 18th, says, I want us to consider the following powers to be added to the list. And what does he say? to dispose of the unappropriated lands of the United States, to institute temporary government for new states, to regulate the affairs of the Indians. Aha, see, that becomes part of the final document. Remember, it says to regulate in, in Indian affairs. Bam, that's where that comes from. Madison's listing of that right there. To exercise exclusive legislative authority of the seat of the general government. Bam, that gets into the final constitution. To grant charters of incorporation. To secure the literary authors their copyrights. Bam, that's the patent clause. In, in, our, in the final constitution. That gets in there. To encourage by premium the advancement of useful knowledge, to authorize the executive to procure and hurl. Blah. He's going on, he's going on, look at the next things. Then um, Mr. Pinckney adds some. Bloody uh, blah, 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 and institutions and universities and whatnot. So, once we start getting to the listing of powers, it becomes the question of what does enumerated powers mean? The enumerated powers means only what you see you can do, or does it mean there's something implied involved? And if you don't list it, what happens? Well, this becomes a big issue, yeah, and I'll, I'll try and just be a little silly on it for a moment. What if uh, you, you say, well, what if Congress, should, should Congress create an Air Force? And you say, well, Let's go find out. And you look at Article 1, Section 8 of the final document, you see Navy, Army, Militia, no Air Force. I'm here to tell you, if the Founding Fathers wanted the Congress to create an Air Force, they'll put that in the Constitution. <laughs> That's why we have the Army Air Corps. That's exactly why we have the Army Air Corps, the American mind at work. That is... Namely, be inventive, be creative. Call it the Army Air Corps. And then when people get used to it, you can drop the word Army. And you're all right. But of course they meant it in terms of the general understanding. But it's people like you, it's people like you, see, who think that's a legitimate thing. That's a slippery slope. Before long, you'll have no child left behind that. <laughs> So the question becomes once again of enumeration. What do we or what do we not enumerate? Well, not to be outdone, 
on August the 20th, having talked about powers, on August the 20th, Mr. Pinckney decides that it's time to talk about rights. So Mr. Pinckney says, let me, let me uh, list the following. Each house shall be judge of his own privileges during the praise. Each branch of the the privilege of habeas corpus shall not be suspended. Aha, that makes its way into the final document. And where? Article 1, Section 9. Why Article 1, Section 9? Because you want to limit the powers of Congress. Right? So that's where it ultimately appears. The liberty of the press shall be inviolably preserved. No troops shall be kept up in time of peace but by consent of the legislature. The military shall always be subordinate to civil power. No soldier shall be quartered in any house in time of peace. No religious test or qualification shall ever be annexed. Mr. Pinckney lists the right. What's the point? The point, again, to be brief, is that once you start listing powers, you want to make sure that you list as many as possible or hold open room for discretion and implications. And once you start listing powers, you're going to start listing rights. And then the question becomes, how many rights do you list? Because it's the presumption if it's not there, do you not have it? That's the importance of the discussion of August the 18th, 19th, uh, uh, 20th, and, and, and 21st. Finally, on August the 21st, they get around to the importation of slaves clause. <clears throat> and initially, this is done on pages 502 and 503. Um, Mr. Martin, he says, look, I think it's inconsistent with the principles of the revolution and dishonorable to the American character to have such a feature in the Constitution, page 502. I'll repeat that. It was inconsistent with the principles of the revolution. Uh, so far, the delegates have been pretty deferential to the committee on details, except for the glue. And here they get downright disagreeable with the committee on detail report on the importation. Mr. Martin, it is inconsistent with the principles of revolution. Mr. Rutledge from South Carolina did not see how the importation of slaves could be encouraged. He was not apprehensive of insurrections. Interest, he says, religion and humanity had nothing to do with this question. Interest alone is the governing principle with nations. Talk about realpolitik. Um, so, Mr. so we've got the argument. Is it a matter of principle or is it a matter of interest? <coughs> Mr. Pinckney at the end of the day, South Carolina can never receive the plan if it prohibits the slave trade. In every proposed extension of the powers of Congress, that state has expressly and watchfully accepted that of meddling with the importation of Negroes. If the state be all at left at liberty on this subject, South Carolina may perhaps by degrees do of herself what is wished as Virginia and Maryland have already done. Well, that's the leave us alone and we'll come home notion. Well, that's done at the end of the day. And they take it up in full flight on August the 22nd. So if you want an extended uh, a, a conversation about slavery and the slave trade at the convention, this is the day. It's not the three-fifths clause. It's the importation clause that drives the conversation over slavery. 
And you can take a few examples. Colonel Mason, Maryland and Virginia, he said, had already prohibited the importation of slaves expressly. North Carolina had done the same. All this would be in vain if South Carolina and Georgia be at liberty to import. Because South Carolina and Georgia are the only two states, except by 1787, that still imported slaves. Mr. Pinckney, if slavery be wrong, it is justified by the example of all the world. General Pinckney, also from South Carolina. South Carolina and Georgia cannot do without slaves, etc., etc. Mr. Wilson observed that if South Carolina and Georgia were themselves disposed to get rid of the importation of slaves in a short time, as had been suggested, they would never refuse to unite because the importation might be prohibited. Mr. Dickinson considered it as inadmissible on every principle of honor and safety that the importation of slaves should be authorized by the states by the Constitution. Mr. Rutledge, next page, South Carolina. If the convention thinks that North Carolina, South Carolina, and Georgia will ever agree to the plan unless their right to import slaves be untouched, the expectation is in vain. Mr. Randolph, next page. Let's see if we can submit this to a committee. They come up. <laughs> We're getting nowhere. Committee in your whole isn't working on this. The committee in detail report ain't, ain't working. Mr. Randolph was for committing in order that some middle ground might, if possible, be found. He could never agree to the clause as it stands. That is, Congress shall never prohibit slavery, ever, in slave trade, ever. He could never agree to the clause as it stands. He would sooner risk the Constitution. He dwelt on the dilemma to which the convention was exposed. By agreeing to the clause, it would revolt the Quakers, the Methodists, and many others in the states having no slaves. On the other hand, two states might be lost to the Union. Let us then, he said, try the chance of a commitment. Once again, it boils down to two states. This whole conversation on slavery, it boils down to the issue of two states. And how important is the Union with those two states in versus how important is the Union with those two states out? The committee was appointed, top of page 509. Mr. Langdon, Mr. King, Mr. Johnson, Mr. Livingston, Mr. Clymer, Mr. Dickinson, Mr. Martin, Mr. Madison, Mr. Williamson, Mr. Pinckney, and Mr. Baldwin. Mr. Madison is on the committee. On August the 24th, the committee makes a report two days later. Governor Livingston, at the top of page 522, <clears throat> proposes the following. Now, migration or importation of such persons as the several states now existing, we've got the now existing back in, shall think proper to admit, shall not be prohibited by the legislature prior to the year 1800. President, Northwest Ordinance, understanding of 1800. But a tax or duty may be imposed on such migration or importation. That is, we're going to discourage it. We're going to add a disincentive for importation at a rate not exceeding the average of the duties on imports. So that is proposed. So what is the proposal? On the one hand, you have the Committee on Detail report says, never ever shall Congress prohibit the slave trade. That's the condition for South Carolina and Georgia entering. The Livingston report comes up with, 
will do it until the year 1800, and we shall discourage its importation. Mumble, mumble, mumble. Think about it overnight. Come back. <clears throat> when they come back on the 25th, take, take it up. Um, and they come back on page 530. The report of the Committee of Eleven was taken up. Mr. Pinckney. Well, obviously, Mr. Pinckney ain't going to like the 1800s. And certainly, the South Carolina delegates are not going to. Mr. Pinckney moved to strike out the words the year 1800 as the year limiting the importation of slaves and insert the words 1808. <laughs> Mr. Madison. 20 years will produce all the mischief that can be apprehended from the liberty to import slaves. So long a term will be dishonorable to the national character than to say nothing about it in the Constitution at all. On the motion, it passed to move from 1800 to 1808. The motion passed seven yes, four no. I just want to introduce uh, uh, something to you here. Many times statesmen are faced with some great dilemmas. And here's the great dilemma on this one. You've got, is South Carolina and Georgia going to enter or not? How do we, how do we take the stand with regard to slavery? You've got over here, you've got 1800. That's the new millennium, the new age. Let's do it. We're working towards it. Only South Carolina and Georgia currently prohibited. Let's do it. On the other hand, way over here, you have never. And you got Pinckney willing to go for 1808. What do you do? 1800, never 1808. Seven say, let's go for 1808. Four say no. Who are the four that say no? You're going to take a look. New Jersey. What's that? New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Delaware, Virginia. Why? Because they wanted never? No, because they wanted 1800. That's the way I think to look at this. The seven to four vote, the seven who voted in favor were willing to go for 1808. The people who voted no wanted to go for 1800. So it wasn't 1808. It was a genuine compromise, in other words. And a motion that was to move in the direction of 1800. And Madison said, much mischief could be done. Now, what did he have in mind? He couldn't, even Madison couldn't have predicted the spinach yet. Not even Madison. But that changed an incredible amount. That was in 1793. I think what he had in mind, in many ways, is, is the following. And I just I put this out to you as a, as, a, as a conjecture. What he had in mind is what? You put a date like that of 1808. On the one hand, you're encouraging people to meet the deadline. And on the other hand, you're encouraging people to beat the deadline. Yes? Principle. I know it sounds very hard. Being the largest state and the largest slave state, George Mason was the largest slave owner practically in Virginia, and he voted against extending the slave trade. 
There are people who are going through a learning curve. Some people going in the opposite direction, some people going in this direction, some people going quicker, some people going slower. It was a matter of Madison, Washington, Mason, all against the encouragement of the slave trade. And the, uh, I think that's the point. I mean, we, you see, if we, I, I hate for the people of South Carolina and Georgia to take it on the chin on this, but you've got to take it on the chin on this. In, 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 terms, of, in terms of, because it is not, it is not 13 rotten states. The question becomes, when do you and why do you compromise on a principle? And do you keep a principle in motion as you do so? That's the tough stuff of statesmanship, which is different than saying you're rotten at the core. You can say you're making some, some inadequate judgments, some inadequate decisions, which is different than saying, mom, dad, you stink. Or you could say, well, you know, I made, did the best I could under the conditions, but Hope you do better. So, that, so, so what happens? Well, they pass it. Mr. Gouverneur Morris, you know what? He was, was from Pennsylvania, who voted no. He voted no because he didn't like 1808, he wanted 1800. Gouverneur Morris was for making the clause read at once. This is what he says. Look, look, look. The importation of slaves into North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia should not be prohibited. Because isn't that what we're talking about? We're not talking about the other states. We're just talking about these three states. Why don't we just say it? This is what would be most fair and would avoid the ambiguity by which under the power with regard to naturalization, the liberty reserved to the states might be defeated. He wished it to be known also that this part of the Constitution was a compliance with those states. If the change of language, however, should be objected to by the members, he wouldn't urge it. Mr. Dickinson. He wished the clause to be confined to the states which had not themselves prohibited the importation of slaves, and for that purpose moved to amend the clause so as to read, the importation of slaves into such of the states as shall permit the same shall not be prohibited. And then that also was voted uh, 7 to 4. In other words, what do you have? If we take a look at the final document itself, which is Article 1, Section 9. Why is it in Article 1, Section 9? Because Article 1, Section 9 deals with the rights of individuals or the rights of states against the Congress. First one, Congress shall not prohibit the importation of, of those such persons into those states now existing, as shall think proper to admit, prior to the year 1808. Okay. Notice, it says nothing about what, what about those states that don't think it proper to admit. Can Congress do anything about that? That came up in the 1790s. What about, yeah, and the, and the answer was, well, by the time 1800 came along, it's, it, it, Congress passed a law which says those states which think it improper to admit slaves, we will protect them. And so a law was passed. And if you violate, in other words, if you bring slaves from Africa and you ship them in to Rhode Island, even, yeah, or Rhode Island, or Massachusetts, um, the, the Congress of the United States can protect Massachusetts and Rhode Island from such importation. That does not violate Article 1, Section 9, because Article 1, Section 9 says those states that think it proper to admit. So Congress can do something. Aha, is that an ingenious understanding of Article 1, Section 9? Perhaps. But if you look at the debates, there was an, a deliberate attempt in the debates to confine it to those states that think it proper to admit and to those states now existing and only to 1808. Well, 
and importation. Well, what about exportation? Congress in 1790 passed a law which says, hereby no, no American citizen can export slaves, export people for the purpose of slave, or export slaves. So that takes care of that one. Well, how about Americans serving on ships? 1803, no American can serve on a ship as a master or a, or a, or a seaman on a ship to, to, to be able to export, uh, import or export slaves. But how about American shipping itself? No American ship can be. How about ships from other countries coming in to dock and get, get, get improved? No ship can come in. So I don't know what, and what happened in 1800, and, what, what happened in 1808? Well, in, on January 1807, the House passed a piece of legislation saying effective, um, uh, you know, effective January the 1st, 1808, no importation. In February, the Senate passed the same thing. And on March 1807, Jefferson, President Jefferson passed the same act. So effective 1808, January the 1st, no importation with severe penalties. In May of 1807, the British did the same thing. <coughs> importation. Uh, no, it uh, ended the slave trade in 1807. And so in 1807, on the one hand, you have this movement of 20 years towards solidifying the end of the slave trade by these two countries. But they're, they're only two countries who do. And in fact, after the War of 1812, between Britain and the United States, in the Treaty of Ghent, one of the features of the Treaty of Ghent is that we shall join together to make sure that the slave trade is ended because the other countries of the world were still doing the slave trade. In fact, Cuba didn't end slavery until 1860. And can you imagine Cuba, right off the coast of the United States, importing slaves, the underground traffic of slavery, not the underground traffic simply of slaves leaving the United States. But I think on the other hand, what Madison is getting at when he talks about much mischief can be done is the following. More slaves were imported into the United, into British North America slash United States between 1740 and 1808 than entirely from 1600 to 1740. But that doesn't tell the whole story. Because, because we've got these two things going on. As slavery, is in, slavery and slave trade is increasing between 1740 and 1808, you're also having the increase and the birth, the birth and development of anti-slave societies and abolitionist movements. You're having both. So you're having the, quote, good part, and you're having the mischievous part. But to add it on, between 1787 and 1808, in those 20 years, more Africans were imported into the United States than any previous 20-year period. The mischief, I think, that Madison is getting at is that, well, on the one hand, it looks good. We're setting a timetable. We're setting time for withdrawal. It will encourage us to do the right thing. But on the other hand, it will permit those who have mischief on their mind to make much mischief while they can. And so you get this incredible occurrence that takes place so that by 1808, you have a lot, you have the greatest importation that has occurred. And you cut it off, but then what do you do about the slave trade? with other countries. The delegates continue their way through. And they talk about the judiciary. And they get to number 15. 
they get to, when I get, get back to August the 6th, August, they get to, yeah, they get to number 15, which you have to repeat on page 394, is that the extradition clause, any person charged with treason, felony, or high misdemeanor who shall flee from justice shall be found in any state or other state shall under demand the executive uh, be delivered up. And on August, I say, on August the 28th, uh, they get to that clause, which is the extradition clause. And uh, uh, bottom of page 545, you can see this. Article 15 being taken up, the words high misdemeanor were struck out and other crimes inserted. Mr. Butler and Mr. Pinckney from South Carolina moved, quote, to require fugitive slaves and servants to be delivered up like criminals. Up till this time, the fugitive slave clause had not appeared. It appears as an addition to the extradition clause. Mr. Wilson, this would oblige the executive of the state to do it at the public expense. Mr. Sherman, so no more proprieting the public seizing and surrendering a slave or servant on a horse. Mr. Butler, South Carolina, withdrew his proposition in order that some particular provision might be made apart from this article. So that why don't we come up then with a separate clause dealing with fugitive slaves, separate from the extradition clause which we have here, which has triggered us to talk about fugitive slaves. On August the 29th, the very next day, on page 552, Mr. Butler moved to insert after the extradition clause, if any person bound to service or labor in any United States shall escape into another state, he or she, again, he or she, shall not be discharged from such service of labor in consequence of any regulation subsisting in the state to which they escaped, but shall be delivered up, up to the person justly claiming. Now, the language of the Northwest Ordinance was, we're legal therein, not justly. And if you take a look at page... Um, I, and, well, in the Committee on Style report, legally replaces justly. <coughs> and then they debate that at the end of the day. And at the end of the day, they talk about, on page 648, whether we're going to stick with the substitution of legally for justly. Top of 648. Now talking about the Committee on Style report. The term legally was struck out. And simply, and under the laws thereof, inserted after the word state, in compliance with the wish of some who thought the term legal equivocal and favoring the idea that slavery was legal in a moral view. So the fugitive slave clause that we get in the final constitution, and I invite you to compare the language of the fugitive slave clause of the constitution with the extradition clause. And if you go to article one, of the, of the final constitution, that's the legislature. Article two is the president. Article three is the judiciary. Article four is what each state owes each other. Okay, so you will go there to figure out what one state owes another state with regard to extradition. And I invite you to look at the language of the uh, extradition clause with the language of the, um, 
Fugitive Slave Clause. And on that point, we will end. Let me, let, where's the, uh, do you have a copy there just for me just to read it for you to, to take a look? Okay. Um, the language of extradition clause is, a person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall on demand of the executive be delivered up. Demand be delivered up. The Fugitive Slave Clause says, no person held to service or labor in one state under the laws thereof, escaping into another, shall in consequence of any law or regulation therein be discharged for such service or labor, but shall be delivered up upon claim to whom service or labor is to be due. The point I'm making is that the language of the extradition clause leaves very little room for discretion. And it's clearly justice. The language of the fugitive slave clause is watered down from justice and a claim has to be made. One of the ironies and double ironies of American life is how by the time the 1850s comes along, this clause becomes almost central to the entire debate over slavery. And this clause has been, was interpreted as obliging Congress to enforce this clause and that, uh, and that it gave Congress no discretion with regard, to, with regard to it. And so it's funny how certain clauses at certain times take on a life which was not intended by the framers. And, and so that gets us to September the 17th. <laughs> <laughs> by, by way of uh, all kinds of things. On, uh, on, on September the 17th, the, uh, the, the framers uh, signed, the, signed the Constitution. <clears throat> I discovered this menu at the City Tavern. Don't go down here, please. Uh, just take it right where you are, right. Um, for, for the, this menu at the City Tavern, I discovered it when I was working on the Miracle at Philadelphia exhibition 20 years ago. And I was very excited because it was a menu for the city tavern for 55 gentlemen, 55 people attended the Constitutional Convention, and it was for Washington, farewell dinner, 55, right? And it was September the oh, 14th or 15th, not September the 17th. But I thought, well, you know, maybe the menu for the farewell dinner will be exactly the same. So I decided to copy it out, and there, unless we take it down, we'll read what they had to eat on the 15th of September. They had to 50 relishes, olives, 20 pounds, 12, 54 bottles of Madeira, 20 pounds, 5, 60 bottles of claret, 21 pounds, 8 bottles of old stock, 3 pounds, 6, 22 bottles of porter, 2 pounds, 15, 8 bottles of cider, 16 pounds, 70 bottles of beer, 7 large bowels of punch, 4 pounds, 4, sugars, candles, etc., decanters of wine glasses, tumblers broken, 1 pound, 2. And then it comes to poor servants and musicians, 16 bottles of claret, 5 pounds 12, 5 bottles of Madeira, 1 pound 17, 7 bowls of punch rather than bowels of punch, 2 pounds 16, total bill, 89 pounds for dinner. And then here was the, the, was the payment for the magicians. Christlich, Schlutz, Schweiner, Kaiser, Hartung, Roti, Katschlag, Brüder, Sprangenberg. And I figure, where are all these Germans coming from? <laughs> I get, a, I get a letter. What is beauties? I get a letter from Mr. Christliff's great-great-great-great-grandson. And he says, would you like to know about my great-great-great-great-grandfather? I said, yeah. <laughs> and he says, he was, a, he was hired by George III as a Hanoverian mercenary. And he came over here and fought Washington and was defeated, imprisoned, and then at the end of the war, released. 
decided not to go back to Germany, decided to stay in Pennsylvania and go to Germantown with a whole bunch of other Germans. And four years later, in an American success story, they all show up at George Washington's farewell dinner and play for the general. <laughs> See you at the city tavern.